This is a little bit different for us. We love to really teach and work through large portions of text. We love to teach through books of the Bible. We love to look at Scripture and its sort of depth and um, kind of full breadth. But during these seasons, it gives us a chance to do something a little bit different. And as I mentioned during our announcement time, we are going to be looking at this season a little bit differently. We're going to be looking at some of these songs, which we call Songs of Hope, and we're going to be, as Don kind of mentioned, theologically unpacking them a little bit, saying, what are we singing? These aren't songs that just dance around a season, but instead, they're great proclamations and declarations of things that we believe to be true about God that are deeply tied into biblical, wonderful biblical principles that are theologically right and sound, a lot of them. Some of them aren't so much, and that's why it's important when we worship and we sing, we understand what we're worshiping and what we're singing. And so what we decided to do was to take a few of our favorites and unpack them a little bit, pick a a section or a a piece of a verse or some verses in a course or whatever, and kind of unpack it and dive into the biblical roots of it. So we're not looking at the songs so much to inform us, but we're looking at how the songs point us to Scripture. So everything we do here as a church is really bibliocentric in its movements, meaning we want it to be surrounded and ingrained and anchored upon scripture. So we're not looking at songs as the text. We're looking at songs as how they point us to the text. So we're going to be unpacking them from the standpoint of what does scripture tell us about the things that we're singing and why this song is so deeply important to who we are and what we understand to be truth about Christ. And so that's where we're going to be for the next three weeks. That's what our devotional guide that Brandon wrote goes along with. It kind of walks us through these things. It'll be going hand in hand with the songs that we're picking out and kind of using as this launching place for our study of Advent. We want Advent to be something wholly different for your family. We want it to be more than what our culture pushes us towards where it's shopping malls and to-do lists and busyness and stuff and running around and credit card debt and all that stuff. We want it to be this real unpacking of who Christ is, what he came to do, and the promise of what's to come. So as I kind of mentioned during this season every year, Advent comes from a Latin word adventus, which really just means coming or arrival. And we celebrate during the season the coming or arrival of the birth of Christ, but there's really two Advents, right? There's the coming or arrival of Jesus, the inbreaking into the world, the incarnation, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then there's the promise of his return, which is the second Advent. So Advent really is a season that both looks back and celebrates the inbreaking of Christ into the world and looks forward to Christ's return. So it's a both and. It's this, this deep celebration, but this longing and expectation that this is not the end, that there something so much better, that we're not celebrating some event that took place some 2,000 years ago, worshiping a baby in a manger, right? That's just the inbreaking moment. Jesus actually grew up into a man. He suffered and died, was crucified and raised from the dead, and the promises to return. So Advent is this season that actually just points us to the manger, but is built around the cross. And so that's what we gather here to celebrate with the idea of Advent is there is this great moment, the celebration of God breaking into humanity, the incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, but this promise that he will come and make all things right, that he will come back. And so we're both celebrating and anticipating all rolled into this giant moment of holy surprises, right? And so that's what this season is about. And so that's kind of how we're going to approach it. And so we've approached it with this idea of looking at some of these things that we sing and saying, what is it that we're actually singing, proclaiming about God when we sing these Christmas hymns, these great songs, these great moments um, that are kind of built around this season? And why do these not come out more often than just simply around Christmas? 
So this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to step into this process by looking at this first song, Oh, Come All You Faithful. And we're going to use it as a, a launching pad to talk about really what it would essentially be seven full sermons rolled into a giant waffle this morning, just pressed into something that's going to be way too much information. I'm going to try and do it relatively quickly because it's so deep and so rich and reminds us so much of who God is. It's going to point us to things like the incarnation. It's going to point us to what it means to worship and adore. It's going to point us to the idea of Christ is Lord. It's going to talk about Jesus as everlasting Father, mighty God, right? Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. We're going to look at all of those pieces briefly and try and uncover exactly what we're saying when we proclaim these things about who God is. So as we prepare our hearts to do that, we're going to go before the Lord and pray. We're going to be all over the Bible this morning. We're going to kind of be jumping to some different places, but we're going to start in John chapter one. So if you're one of those people that kind of needs to know where we're going, we're going to be in John chapter one as we unpack this first idea of the incarnation. But let's pray and then we'll put the verses that we're going to look up here on the screen and we'll kind of walk through them this morning as we do that. But let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity today to gather in this place. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to worship together as community. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken what is ordinary and you have made it extraordinary. Lord, that you have taken a manger and you have taken a, a stable or you have taken a ordinary human things and you have used them for these incredible, holy, redeeming purposes. That you have taken what is so broken in our world and used it for your majesty and your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken the ordinary and you have made those things extraordinary. So, Lord, this morning we gather in this place as ordinary people, um, with ordinary flaws and sins and things and stuff and garbage, and yet we serve and worship a God that is extraordinary, who takes those things and redeems them and turns them in to beauty, who takes our brokenness and, and turns them into things of glory, Lord, not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of the redeeming nature of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And so this morning, we're grateful that our sin does not define us, that we're not marked by our worst moment, Lord, that we are not covered by our deepest regret, that we're not called to live in shame or fear, but we are clothed in beauty and righteousness as followers of Christ that surrender our hearts to him We've been made new, completely and totally new. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, and as we just prepare to kind of get into God's word and unpack these truths about who God is, that he would just teach you, that he would take something maybe that you've heard a hundred times, and he would kind of reorient it to make it fresh and alive for you this morning. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We deeply believe that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is just not about you. Um, we want to be a community that prays for the people around us, that cares about who worships next to us, whether it's our, our spouse or whether it's a friend or maybe it's someone we've never even seen before. We just we want God to move in them. We want to care about the spiritual well-being and growth. And so take a moment and just pray for him. Just pray that God would move in him, that he would teach him, that if they're dealing with something, he would make himself known to them. Like whatever you feel, press to pray for them. Just, just do that in the stillness of your heart this morning. Pray for the people around you.
Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We ask you to teach our hearts, to instruct us, to lead us, Lord, to reveal yourself to us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So the first song we're looking at this season is, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. And really the idea behind this song is it's a, a throw back to the time that the shepherds were standing out in the fields and the angels appeared to them and basically proclaimed that Jesus has been born in this town of Bethlehem and that they needed to essentially go and worship him, right? That whole picture that we're going to look at here in a little bit that comes out of Luke chapter 2. This idea of adoring Christ the Lord that he has broken into humanity. And so what we've done is we've taken a few of those lyrics, mainly the third verse, which we're going to sing this morning, and a little modern adaptation that's added. Because this song was written back in the 18th century. Um, it's had about 200 different adaptations over the years, but the verses have remained the same. They've just been different arrangements and different pieces. And we're going to look this morning at some of those historical verses tied with some of these modern movements that have been attached to it, and then we're going to sing it together. But I've chosen the third um, verse to look at first because I think it launches us into this idea of the incarnation that I want you to grasp and understand. And so we've got to understand before we even begin to unpack theologically what's happening around Christmas, we have to understand the incarnation. Right, And the incarnation is born out of this idea. So it says, yes, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. So all that wraps us into this idea that we have this great, incredible morning, right? Because this, the, the angels are announcing this to the shepherds, this incredible thing that's unfolding in the middle of the night, in the Middle Eastern night sky. We are overjoyed. Why? Because God, right, has shown up in the flesh. That the word has been made flesh and he is now appearing before us, which of course takes us right to John chapter 1. Now, those of you who have been part of our community for a while, we spent a whole couple of years going through every verse in the gospel of John. But I want you to look in particular at John 1, 14. And we're going to see this idea of the word made flesh, right? So this is what John says in 1, 14. He says, the word, which we know to be Jesus, because 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, Right? We know that Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God. So it said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the idea of the incarnation is it's the idea that the word, Jesus, the logos of God, has become flesh. That he was God and that he is God and that he was with God in the beginning and he, God has made his son flesh, that the word of God has become flesh. The idea of the incarnation is simply this theological concept that says that Jesus is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is not some mere man walking around the Judean countryside with some qualities of God, with some miracle doings, some great teaching, some of those things. The incarnation is the proclamation that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the embodiment of God, and therefore we are not celebrating the birth of a man. We're celebrating God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word of God actually becoming flesh. Now, for a lot of us, when we talk about the incarnation over the season, we like to think that this is this amazingly peaceful thing that's happening, right? In fact, in our minds, we get this idea of John mentioned Christmas caroling or standing around the manger or these peace on earth, this kind of like um, kumbaya harmony thing that's unfolding. But really, from a biblical standpoint, the incarnation was a violent collision. It was a violent collision of holy, majestic, mighty, wondrous God into sinful humanity through the piercing cries of an infant. Breaking through the Middle Eastern night sky, John calls it light piercing the darkness. 
These are not soft things. These are not easing into seasons. This is the collision of all that is holy with all that is sinful. It was violent. And if you think about the life of Christ, you will see the life of violence. Not in terms of how he acted, but in terms of the war that was being waged on sin. If you just think about the last week in the life of Christ, you think anything but peace, right? Jesus arrested by a group of people that had clubs and torches and pitchforks and things, right? They grab him and they put him on a sham of a trial. They strip him. They beat him. Crowns of thorns, blood everywhere, literally carrying his own cross, crucified, humiliated, tortured, and killed on this Roman instrument of death. You see, the incarnation is not this peaceful easing in of all things by which we all just try and get along. The incarnation is the radical upheaval of all that is sinful. It's the collision of God's beautiful holiness to come and rescue and redeem humanity. So this happy morning is not because Jesus has come to make us all hold hands. This happy morning is because Jesus has come to make all things right. That he has come to overthrow sin. That we're going to see in a moment that he is actually warrior mighty God. That he has come from heaven to reconcile all humanity into himself, to bring back to harmony with. And it's not an easy process. It is a battle and it is a fight and it is a war that is waged over your soul spiritually. And so when we proclaim the incarnation, when we understand the incarnation, we have to understand that this is not something that God takes lightly. That God, through his redemptive plan and history, breaks into humanity, light piercing the darkness and this violent upheaval of all that was sinful with all that is holy. And it's important to understand that, not because we shouldn't be longing for things of peace, but because what Christ went through to redeem your soul was a violent act of war spiritually. That he conquered death, that he defeated death, that death no longer has mastery over him or over sin. And therefore, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. The old has most literally been put to death. These are not words of peace, right? These are words of violent action. When God sees our lives of sin, he does not say, oh, Treb's just trying his best. You know, we'll, he'll be okay one day. He literally, it breaks the soul of God. And so God broke into humanity to defeat sin. The incarnation, right? Really understanding this movement is understanding that it was an act of beautiful violence to redeem and reconcile all of creation. And so what the shepherds are experiencing on that happy morning is not this kumbaya moment in which we all wear matching pajamas and play Christmas music while we open gifts to each other. They're celebrating the fact that God has promised to come and he has come and that their lives, their world is no longer echoed in this blanket of darkness, but there's the promise and hope of Christ, which we're going to see proclaimed here in a moment. So these first verses we look at are this idea that we have this happy morning that Jesus is to have all glory given to him. Why? Because he is the word of God and he has been made flesh. We have to understand the incarnation. So we'll move to that second part of that verse, right? So we've got to understand the incarnation. Then we have to move into the, the course. The chorus of the song is the one that we know the best, right? It's that one that says, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. So in order to really understand what we're singing, we have to understand this, this kind of bigger concept of what does it mean to adore Jesus as Lord? 
like truly to adore Jesus as Lord. There's two pieces there, right? There's the Christ is Lord, and there's the idea of adoration. I'll do this briefly because we've done it for so many times before, but this idea of Jesus as Lord is not a throwaway concept in Scripture. Right? Like most of us that show up this morning, we're okay with saying Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is, is King, Jesus is Emmanuel, whatever. We even will say Jesus is Lord, but very few of us recognize the reality of what we're proclaiming when we say that. Because to say that Jesus is Lord means that we are giving our lives over or that we understand the Lordship of Christ, meaning that Christ is my Lord. We're not just saying I worship a God who is full of love and kindness and grace. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying he is Lord of my life, therefore he is Lord of all things over and in me. I surrender my life completely and totally to him. He becomes my God. I become to serve him. The lordship of Christ is the idea of death to self in scripture. That my life is no longer mine. But as Paul says, I have died to myself and I've been raised in Christ, right? Like I no longer belong to me, but I belong fully to Christ. Why? Because he is my Lord. Meaning that my direction in my life is no longer up to me. I don't get to make choices that I think are best for me. I first say, Jesus, where are you? How are you leading? How do I surrender my life to you? You are my Lord. You are my God. You are my King. To understand the lordship of Christ is to understand the death of yourself and the desire to only serve and please and worship him. It means that we believe in the incredible sovereignty and movements of God in which he is in control of all things. It means that the lordship of Christ is the understanding that he has majesty and control over every movement in the universe. That there's no pandemic or political party or situation in the world that will ever dethrone the reign of Christ right? Ever. Because Jesus is Lord. So look real quickly at Luke chapter 2, right? This is a great picture of this. And there's a bunch of them, but this is my favorite because this is kind of where this song is pointing us to. So Luke chapter 2, right? This is the the, the moment where the angels appeared to the shepherds, right? Let's look at verses 8 through 14. So when there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. So this is the proclamation this song makes. And the idea in there, wrapped up in there, is this, there is this baby that has been born and he is Christ. Remember, I've told you this before, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a proclamation of a title. That he is the one, right? It's not like Jesus H. Christ or whatever. It's, it is a proclamation of him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the one to come. That today in the town of David, the anointed, the proclaimed, the one that was foretold through all of scripture has arrived and it is Jesus and he is the Lord. It's not that he is a promised one that will come and reign and be an earthly leader, right? Which is what all the Jews wanted. They're instead saying, he is Christ the Lord, and here is the sign to you that this has happened. You're going to find him wrapped in a manger, in clothes lying in a manger. And this Jesus, he is Lord. He is not king of, 
He is not simply king. He is not simply ruler. He is not governor. He is not mayor. He is Lord. And when we surrender our lives as believers to the lordship of Christ, we are saying, Lord, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Everything I have is about you. You are more important and more valuable than anything I own, I have, and belongs to me. You are mine, and I am yours fully. So the lordship of Christ agrees that Jesus has that place of authority in our lives and that we put all of our hopes on him, not in the things of the world. If you're putting your hopes in a political party that's going to resurrect whatever feelings you have or get whatever we have back to whatever it was, you're just sorely mistaken, right? Our hopes go only in Christ. That no matter what happens in this world, whichever way it turns, whatever movements happen, Jesus is still Lord, right? So we understand that as a proclamation of these angels. But then something incredible happens, right? As the angel is saying this, right? As he's proclaiming to these boys that are probably between 12 and 15 years old, that are throwaways culturally. I mean, literally shepherds were throwaways culturally. And the angels appeared to these guys first. As they're speaking, it says suddenly, right? A great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God. So in the middle of this Middle Eastern night sky, as if that weren't incredible enough, that an angel of the Lord is either standing or hovering among these shepherd boys, telling them that Jesus the Lord has been born, this host, and I don't know how many that is, but I assume the heavens, I mean, it's got to be a lot, right, breaks out in the choir of choirs in the middle of this Middle Eastern night sky, and they just begin singing almost over the words of this angel, right? Like suddenly this incredible outpouring of worship and adoration happens in which these angels start saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests, right? So another principle here we'll get to in a moment is that this idea of peace is, is really not just that Jesus came to make everybody hold hands. But his peace is on those whom his favor rests. And how does his favor fall? We surrender our lives to Christ. We no longer are waging war with sin. We've been reconciled through Jesus. So this idea of adoration that we see breaking out with these angels is really incredible to me because adoration and worship are not the same thing. Um, it's a portion of worship, but it's something wholly different, right? Like worship is something where we can come and give our praise and our attention to. But adoration is something wholly different. And the truth is, for most of us, worship is what we think takes place on Sunday morning. We, we get up, we go through the habit of getting here, we stand here, we sing some songs, we hear a sermon and we've worshipped and we can leave. And the truth is, is that showing up on a Sunday and singing songs on its own merit has about as much to do with worship as having a bike does to winning the Tour de France. Like The reality is, is that just because you have one does not mean you're doing the other right? I mean, you can show up at church and sing and never really worship. You can own a bike and never win the Tour de France. I mean, that's just the reality. So those two things are, are, are mutually exclusive because there's a key part to worship and adoration that is more than words and more than um, actions. It's about the heart. Jesus actually says it to his disciples in Matthew 15. He says, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, these men honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. They worship me in vain. Which is really powerful, right? He says, they're saying all the right things about me. This is what they're doing. They're saying the right things. They're honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far away and their worship is in vain. If we take that and apply it to our lives, when you show up here on a Sunday morning or anywhere for that matter, 
and you sing songs and you honor God with your lips, but your heart is not in it. Right? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, essentially, you just worship me in vain. In other words, you're not worshiping. This is just about you. This is where adoration comes in. Adoration is something wholly different. It's said that C.S. Lewis once said that every single one of us has an overwhelming first. And what he means by that is that we have this thing in our life that is overwhelmingly first in our life. It is the overwhelming thing. Maybe that's your children. Maybe it's a car your dad left you. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a whatever. But the reality is we all have something that is overwhelmingly first in our life. For a lot of us, it's ourselves. I am overwhelmingly the most important thing in my life. My pleasure, my happiness, my work, my whatever. The reality is that, that Scripture teaches that the overwhelmingly first is actually a place that's reserved for Christ. For the believer, the overwhelming first should be about Jesus, meaning that he gets the best and the first of all things. It's the idea of tithes and offerings, right? That God gets the first fruits of everything because he gets the best part of our lives. He is overwhelmingly the best and the first. And Christ's spot of adoration is really reserved for that. Adoration in terms of worship is not only is my heart in it, when I come and when I worship or when I sit with, my word, with the word or when I, when I pray, not only is my heart in it, not just honoring him with my lips, my heart in it, but that place, Jesus, you are overwhelming first in my life, above my family, above my passions, my desires, my wants. The truth is we adore whatever we put first, right? The rich man adores his wealth. The vain man adores praise from people. The wise man adores intelligence. Like, just keep that train going. But the follower of Christ should adore Christ. So when we sing these lyrics, oh, come let us adore him, what what the angels are saying to the shepherds is, us who are going to be redeemed and reconciled by Christ, come, let's make him overwhelmingly first in our lives. Let us adore him. Beyond the idea of just singing songs, let us give him the place in our lives that is overwhelming first. It is his. It is reserved for him. He gets the best, right? As the Magi come and they bring these great gifts, this idea is Jesus gets the best of all of us, like as followers of Christ. So when I say I want to worship him, I don't mean I come on to church on a Sunday morning and I sing some songs and say those were pretty good today. We're saying that, Jesus, every moment of my waking breath in my life, I adore you. You are more important to me than everything this world could promise me, including the things that you've blessed me with. My house, my family, my life, that those things pale in comparison to you. And I recognize the depth and difficulty in saying that. Trust me. But it's a reality. I remember, I told this to Brandon and Jenny the other day, I remember the day that my dad told me, right, so we were sitting at the table. I can remember like it was yesterday. And he was explaining to my brother and myself that if it boiled down to it, he would choose my mom over us. I was like, what? Have you seen me? Like, I am great. But he's like, I love her more than I love you in a different way. And it wasn't comparing it like hierarchy, but he's saying essentially like, she takes that place. I'll deal with you later kind of deal, right? This idea that even in the most things we love the most, there is still a place for Jesus to be the first. Like I can adore and love my family, but it can pale in comparison to the way I adore and love Christ. Because when I give Christ my best, guess who else gets my best? My family. 
When I don't give Christ the place of prominence, guess who pays? My family. Because I'm not who I was created to be. When I'm not in the Word, when I'm not praying, when I'm not walking with Him, I'm a shell of whom I'm created to be. But when I'm at my best is when I've given Christ my first. So when we have this idea, we have to understand this incarnation, have to understand what it means to worship and adore Jesus as Lord. And then we have this great little modern add-on that's uh, probably come out in the past 50 years, which we begin to add this piece where we sing these names of Christ. Now, I will tell you this, right, because I've already worked through two full sermons. This is another five. I preached over the last couple of Advents, I preached full sermons on every single one of these. So we're going to try and do them very quickly, right? Because otherwise, we will never leave. Because I get real excited. But this is the proclamation that comes out of Isaiah chapter 9. And it's this incredible picture, right, in which um, Isaiah is basically proclaiming the Israelite people that they don't have to be afraid. That even though things are dark and the despair is real, that God is going to provide a way. He has got this hope for them, that they can put their hope in this, this Messiah that was going to come. There was the hope of Israel, and that hope of Israel was going to come in the form of a child. And this is centuries and centuries before Jesus was born. But it's this incredible picture, and Isaiah names, right, these attributes and characteristics about Christ. We actually went through them all. Um, but let's look at that real quickly. Isaiah, six, or Isaiah 9. And we'll look at 6 uh, and 7. <clears throat> so unto us, for unto us, unto us a child is born. A son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So the first section that we see is this proclamation that comes out of Isaiah 9, in which we're coming to adore Jesus Christ, the Lord, but who is he really? Like, what are the attributes of this? Well, let's look at what Isaiah proclaims as we think about this, because the shepherds, right, would have even been familiar with these passages from Isaiah, because all of Judaism was looking towards the coming of this Christ, They would have known Isaiah's words as a proclamation of the coming Messiah. Who is coming? Who is he going to be like? What kind of nature and character is he going to have? And Isaiah says, let me tell you. And he begins to rifle through these names. Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. And then he ends with the one, right, that bookends Matthew 1 and Matthew 28, which is Emmanuel, which we know to mean God with us, right? So Matthew chapter 1 tells us that a child will be born to us, and we'll be giving him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in Matthew 28, he bookends his gospel, right, where Jesus sends out the church into the world, the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you. Emmanuel, right? I'm with you till the very end of the age. In other words, that he is all these things and he is fully present God. So briefly, right? Briefly, the idea of wonderful counselor. Two pieces, wonderful and counselor. We talked about this at length, so I'm going to do it really quickly. But the concept here is this. This is not wonderful in terms of Jesus is super great. 
It's wonderful in terms of the idea of wonders and wondrous. It's tied to the miraculous virgin birth, to the incredible things that God has done for the Israelites, the parting of the Red Sea, to the incredible wondrous movements of God by which he did incredible things in the Passover and all these things. God is tied to wonders. God is tied to the miraculous. God is tied to the supernatural. He is not just super wonderful like a really great uncle, right? He is absolutely wondrous and mighty. He is the wonder maker. He is the wonder God. He is the one that hung the stars and breathed life into your lungs. He is the one that David said formed me in my mother's womb. He is the one that spoke and life happens. He is the one that parts the Red Sea. He is the one by which delivers Israel. He is the one that will resurrect his son. He is the wondrous, wonderful, mighty God. The name is tied to the idea of counselor, which counselor is not therapist. The actual idea here is counsel in terms of kingship. Now, all kings at the time had a council of people, right? Even Solomon, the most wise of all of them, had a council of people that would speak wisdom into them because no man could rule alone. But what we're told by Isaiah is that the wondrous God is his own counselor. In other words, he is his own king. He is all that we need. He is the wonderful king by which needs no human counsel. So Jesus, coming as God in the flesh, is the wondrous God who is king. Meaning he is set to rule, and that rule will last forever, as we'll see in a moment. It will know no end. He is the king. He is almighty king, wondrous God meaning that he is over all things, and in him all things hold together. He needs not any help from you. He doesn't need your opinion or your thoughts. He knows every breath of your life, every hair, everything that you will do, every idea that you will have, every need that you will have before you ever have it. For he is that type of wonderful king who needs no counsel. So our role as followers of Christ is to trust in the wondrous God who made all these things and believe that he is big enough to do that. He is big enough to rule your life. He hasn't forgot about you. He hasn't forgot about your children. If God can make the stars and the earth, he will certainly take care of you. So if he's big enough to do that, he's big enough to be king of your life, right? That's the idea. He is wonderful counselor. He is wondrous king, right? goes on to say out of Isaiah 9 that he is everlasting father. Now we get that picture in chapter or verse 7 where he says that this reign right, will know no end. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called all these things. He will reign on David's throne and over its kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From this time on, whenever he comes, which would be now, right, the advent, that moment, the inbreaking, and forever. How is this going to happen? Because God is awesome. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So he says he is everlasting father. What that means is that there will be no end to this, that Jesus will break into this earth and he will establish a reign that will take us into eternity. It's not a reign that ends at his death at 33 years old on the cross. That marks the beginning, right? That Jesus always was. We learn this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God from the beginning, and the word was God, meaning that Jesus always was and Jesus always will be. His reign is everlasting. It means it doesn't end when this earth ends and it's not going to end in 2022, 
2024. It doesn't end with the next election. God's reign is always and forever. And not only is that everlasting, he is the everlasting father. And there's just so much I could do here. We talk about authority and rule and protection and providing. But really my favorite picture of all this is this idea of tenderness and compassion. All throughout Scripture, we see God associate his Father with this idea of tenderness and compassion in terms of that he treats us as sons and daughters. That when he corrects, he does it with deep love. He does it with the greatest interest of our hearts. Now, of course, all of us don't have great pictures of what earthly fathers look like, right? Even in our Christian communities, fathers are oftentimes recognized as as aloof or standoffish or they're not present or they've chosen something else, work or whatever. Oftentimes, fathers are portrayed that way because they are that way, right? I had a guy tell me one time, a mentor that I met with for a long time, he said, you know, we were talking about moving into ministry and being a preacher and talking about preacher's kids, and my kids were real little at the time. And he said, you know, the truth is that most oftentimes preacher's kids, the reason they act out is they're just having issues because they have an absent father. They've seen dad give more love to other people than he has at home, to be more present for the church than in their own lives. Now, whether that's totally true or not, I don't understand, but it certainly made sense to me at the time, right? Which is the idea that imperfect earthly pictures, even in our best efforts, as people that truly love the Lord, fail in comparison to what God says he is as eternal, perfect, holy, loving, correcting, teaching father. And he treats us with tenderness and compassion. And there are verses upon verses, if we had time to just get into this, that are so deep. But what I want you to understand in it is this, is that even in those difficult moments, a perfect heavenly father is correcting and loving with no interest other than you knowing him. And so what, what Isaiah is saying is that not only do we have this wonderful, wondrous king that's coming, this king is knowable. And this king loves you like a father loves his child. Oftentimes we think about kings, we think untouchable, out there. I mean, like sitting on a throne, can't even approach, right? But God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has become fully approachable. Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because Christ has given us access to a king who also loves like a father. And his love knows no end, and it will be forevermore. It is ever. Lasting. He goes on to say, and his name shall be Prince of Peace, Mighty God. Well, the idea of Prince of Peace, right, is, is a really powerful one. I kind of mentioned during the incarnation. It's not that Jesus came to make all things perfectly tolerable, that we should all just drop whatever issues we have and hold hands and say, can't we all just get along? Like, let's all just share a Coke. Hold hands. For those old people, you know what I'm saying. Like, well, those commercials were real, right? We just grip hands, go around the world, everyone's going to love each other. Since the creation of the world, sin has destroyed any concept that could ever be. And Jesus did not come so that we would all just get along. The incarnation, right, is this violent inbreaking of holy, majestic, mighty, wondrous God into sinful humanity. When those things collide, there is no simply getting along. Sin does not hold hands with holiness. It just doesn't. So when Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, he actually comes for a specific purpose. He comes, right, to give you or whoever puts their hope in Christ peace with God. Because Paul tells us 
that once we were alienated from God, we are enemies in our minds because of our sinful behavior, which means that you are actually at war with God. We are fully at opposition with God with all of our sinful nature. It is just what Scripture says. We are steeped in it. We are aliens and we are at war. And Jesus came so that he could reconcile that war, so that he could step in and we could surrender our lives to him and he could cover our sin with his righteousness. Right? As Paul says to the Corinthians, he says that we could exchange God's righteousness for our sinfulness, that he became sin, right, so that we might have and become the righteousness of God. That's what a prince of peace does. He comes in, he comes, and he reconciles what is at war, and he makes it at peace. That second part that we looked at in in Luke chapter 2 where he says that this is peace on earth, right, to all men. And then that tiny little tagline, on whom his favor rests. What that means is that Jesus didn't just come with this blanket of peace to lay it over like a giant Snuggie over humanity and be like, this is warm and cuddly and great, like have some hot chocolate. He came to say, listen, there is peace waiting for you when God's favor falls on you. And you know how God's favor falls on you? When you surrender your life to the king, to Jesus. Peace will only come through Christ. He is the prince of peace because he is the one that brings it. So if you're looking for peace, if you're restless, if you're, you're fight, ask yourself, truly, have I surrendered my life to the Prince of Peace, the one who has come to reconcile me, my sin, with holy, majestic, mighty God? So he is this wondrous, wonderful counselor, right? This everlasting, never-ending Father who is accessible through Christ. And that Christ came through that accessibility to give us access to peace with God. And that changes, because once we have peace with God, it changes the way we interact with people. Because I see people differently. I see creation differently. God reorders my entire world and entire economy when we surrender our lives to him. Peace becomes something we champion because we want people to know Christ. So finally he says this, or not finally, got a couple more in there. Mighty God. And this is cool because this idea in Isaiah about mighty is actually better translated as as hero. It really is a cool picture of a valiant hero. And I've talked about this at length last year, I think. We talked about this idea of of a valiant hero or a warrior God. And that's really how it's better translated in the Hebrew. The idea is that we have this mighty, this valiant, this hero, this warrior God. And for a lot of us, that doesn't sit well, right? We don't like to think about God as a valiant, mighty warrior. We like to think about God as this giant floating blob of romantic Christian songs in which he loves us and he's a super friend and he's our homeboy and he's all these great things and he's our great buddy and he just wants to roll around with us and our friends and tell us that everything's going to be okay. That's what we long for. We long for a God who is steeped in love, which he is, but we don't understand how God gets us there. And the way God gets us there is by fighting for us. The incarnation is a violent fight. Just read the accounts of Jesus' life and the war that was being waged with the enemy. The casting out of demons, the defeating of death, right? The conquering of sin, the violence that unfolds on the cross. This is a God who loved you, who made you, who created you, and came to fight for you because you were once alienated and enemies of his. He sent Christ 
to become the bridge as he does war for your soul over darkness. Look, coming to know Jesus is not a peaceful thing. It is a complete denial of yourself and a death to all of sin. It is a surrendering to the lordship of Christ. It is a God who is a conqueror of sin and death. It is a God who is a defeater of evil. It is a God who is victorious, who is valiant, who is mighty, and who has gone to battle for you. And it is a promise that that never ends. Because the more you surrender your life and the more you say you're going to follow Jesus, the more at war the enemy will become with you. He wants to render you ineffective because he cannot steal your soul. And that spiritual battle will wage on. And God never quits fighting. Scripture is full of it. He tells us to call upon him. The reality is is that God is a valiant, mighty warrior God. And he loves you so tremendously. Not only did he come to fight for you, but he continues to fight for you. He will not give up. He will not give up. Why? Because he is everlasting, mighty, tender, king God. And so Isaiah takes all of these names and he rolls them into this one complete picture of Jesus, right? Which is just amazing. And then it ties all together, and this is right where we'll end today, with this idea that's bookended in Matthew, which is this idea of Emmanuel, that there will be a Savior, and he'll be born to us, and we will call him Emmanuel, not as if that's his name, but because of that's who he is in his nature, and that word means God with us, means God present. I don't know if you've ever been alone or felt like you're alone or felt like the world just sort of turned on you or there was this time where everything was just sort of empty or whatever. But the reality is, is that we've all had those moments, right? We felt like God could not be farther away or that we could not be more alone. The idea of God, Emmanuel, is this this proclamation, but it's really this deep, rich promise. It's this deep, rich promise that once we surrender our lives to Jesus, right, to this wonderful counselor, to this mighty God, to this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, that he will never, ever leave you. That God will always be present. He knows you. He knows what you've done and what you will do. He is not afraid or pushed away by your inconsistencies, by your running. He is the perfect, present, always pursuing shepherd God. He is the picture, right, of the prodigal son, the father, waiting on that son to return, chasing him as he sees him a long way off. He is the picture of the shepherd that goes after the one that is lost that celebrates with his neighbors. God is constantly and always and fully present. It means that whatever you're walking through, whether it's this difficult diagnosis or a a marriage that's falling apart or just financial struggles or just deep anxiety or fear or just wondering what's next, the great promise for the follower of Jesus is that you are not alone. No matter what you feel or what you think or maybe what is being echoed in your soul, The reality is we only have to look to Scripture to realize that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is with us. He is always and totally and fully present, and we can rest in that, right? And this is what we sing when we proclaim this song, right? We're saying, saying, God, you have broken into this world. You have come to rescue me. You have come to do violent battle with sin, 
You have become flesh. You literally have come out of this incredible heavenly place and put on the flesh of humanity to walk this earth, to die for me so that I may know you. And I don't deserve any of it. Yet you love me that much. That the incarnation proves that you are in love with your creation and that you are Lord and that only a Lord could do what you have done and that you are to be adored that you are to have the overwhelming first in my life, that there is only room for you there. Why? Because you are wondrous king. You are better than any earthly authority ever could be. And you are accessible, like the father I never had or the father I wish I had or 10 times greater than the best father imaginable on earth. You are all of those things. You are tender and you are compassionate. And you correct, but you do it in love and you never leave. You never abandon. You never show someone else more than you show me. And that love will never end. In fact, the more I know you, the more it gets revealed. And the greater promise of as I step one step closer to eternity, right? I get you. And then we can work through those others. But the idea simply is that's what we're proclaiming. So one of the things that I missed that I'm going to pick up on right now because I'm just that good a guy. We have this incredible Advent wreath right here. We were supposed to light it right before. But we're going to do it right after. Why? Because that's how I drew it up in my head. I wanted it to be perfect setup for this song. So as we set up our time, right, to... Um, close our time in this worship. Um, I'm going to invite uh, our Gronsky family to come forward. I know they've got to go get their kids because I released them way before and when I missed it. But I'm going to invite them to come up and read for us. And they're going to read about this first Sunday of Advent as the band comes up to lead us in this last song. And each Sunday, we're going to light a new candle on that wreath as a reminder of some of these great proclamations. So I'm going to invite uh, Eddie. I'm sure he went to, she went to go chase, Kirsten went to go chase down your children, which is fine. We'll let them catch up because that's just what I did. It's on me. But I'm invite him to come up to do some reading for us. And then Don and our worship team are going to lead us in this song that we just worked through. And I want it to be something that is alive and rich. I want you to look at these lyrics differently. I want you to look with, at them with a sort of deep and real theological truth that is attached to them. But I'm going to invite the Gronsky family to come up and to read for us, and then we will close our time with this great hymn um, that we have worked so diligently on uh, this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this incredible day in which you have given us this wonderful, amazing promise. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of wonder and a God of truth, that you are a God who rescues and redeems, that you are a God who breaks into humanity that you are a God who we can count on, who we can trust, and who we can believe in. You are a, a warrior, and you are mighty, and you are king, and yet you are wondrous, and you need no counsel from humanity. But more than anything, God, you are present always and forever. At every breath that we take, you are Emmanuel. So, Lord, as we light our Advent wreath and we listen to these truths proclaimed in Scripture, and we sing this song together, tie these pieces together for us so that as we start this season, we change the way that we think about who you are. Amen. <clears throat> this Advent wreath reminds us of God's extravagant love. And each week during the Advent season, we light a new candle as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and live in anticipation of his return. 
This morning we light the first candle on our wreath, which symbolizes expectation and hope. As we light this candle, we are reminded of the longing that filled the heart of God's people as they eagerly anticipated the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. And likewise, with expectation and hope, we celebrate the birth of Christ and eagerly await his return. Psalm 103, 8 to 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and long for you. As we enter the season, fill our hearts with hope and remind us of your amazing love, a love that was demonstrated through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing these beautiful names of the Lord and lift him up in adoration from our hearts.
We'll be going through that same hymn we just sung. Um, it'll go through all the verses. Um, so grab one of those. Use it as a family. Read around your dinner table. It won't take long, but it starts tomorrow. So grab one on your way out. Um, then we'll be working through our next hymn next week. We Hopefully you'll come back and enjoy that time with us. But go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the way that you think about this season, to change the idea of busyness and craziness into this idea of adoration and wonder. For he is Christ the Lord. Go in peace.